Coming up today, Matt Burgess picks over the fallout from the A-level algorithm debacle. Matt Reynolds explains how breast milk is being grown in the lab. And Natasha meets the digital nomads swapping office life for paradise. Welcome to the Wired UK podcast, your essential weekly catch-up on all the big stories in tech, science, business and culture. I'm your host, James Temperton, and joining me this week are Matt Burgess. Hello. Matt Reynolds. Hello. And Natasha Bernal. Hello. This was the week when Airbnb announced plans to list on the stock market despite concerns over the impact of the pandemic. In April, Airbnb raised $2 billion from investors valuing it at $18 billion, well below its $25 billion valuation before coronavirus struck. Apple became the first publicly traded US company to reach a $2 trillion market cap this week, doubling its valuation in just two years. The company hit the landmark valuation briefly on Wednesday and later slid back down to $1.98 billion before market close. This was also the week when Google started targeting people in Australia with pop-up ads saying it may remove search and video services from the country. The aggressive public lobbying from the company comes after regulators started drawing up plans for the web giant to pay news and media outlets for the content that they produce. And it was finally the week when we saw what might turn out to be the highest ever recorded temperature on Earth. A temperature of 54.4 degrees Celsius was recorded on August 16th in the aptly named Furnace Creek in California's Death Valley. It's being verified by the US National Weather Service. And if it is confirmed, it'll be the current record of 54 degrees, which is also in Death Valley. That is astonishingly hot. I went to Death Valley a few years ago and the tour guide um, that I went with was explaining why Death Valley is so hot. It's basically the natural equivalent of a microwave. So there's very, very cool air in the, in the mountains up above it. It's below sea level. And the convection effect just means that hot air is drawn in and in and in and it heats it right up. So it's effectively a, a giant natural sort of microwave effect. And it's bloody hot. Did they do the classic frying an egg on the tarmac or frying an egg on a on a car bonnet while you were there? No, we went in winter, um, so it was still it was still pretty warm, but um, it, it could have been a lot warmer. Um, so yeah, no no egg frying going on then, I'm afraid. What did you learn this week? Let's start with Matt Burgess. Uh, this week I learned that bees understand the idea or the concept of zero um, and they were the first insects that we have discovered to uh, be able to prove this. Uh, so in 2017 a study encouraged bees to fly towards a platform carrying fewer shapes than another platform um, and essentially this told researchers that they could recognise because there was no shapes there uh, there was a smaller value than sort of other platforms with more shapes on um so they sort of understood the concept of nothingness or zero um and a previous study found that bees can count to four bees can count to four how do they do that that was a separate study (laughs) i I have no details on that one very good thank you matt burgess uh matt reynolds what did you learn this week i learned 
also learned a fact about flying insects. So I learned that flies don't buzz around randomly as much as it might seem that that's the case. They tend to fly in straight lines and then turn 90 degrees and fly in a straight line again. And this is actually an optimal searching strategy that helps them discover food sources, uh, both over very wide scales and at very, very small scales. Also, like Matt, bonus fact here, they can smell meat from over seven kilometres away, only in optimal conditions, though. But like bees, would they be able to understand the concept of zero meat? Yeah, I think that's still, yeah, that's probably, that's going to have to be the next study, really, because we, we don't know if they can, yeah, detect some meat versus zero meat. Natasha, have you got another animal fact? No, my fact is not bug related. Uh, my fact is about a colour. <laughs> so you might think oranges are orange, but they are not orange. They are in fact green. So oranges are subtropical, I learned this week, not tropical fruit, which means they only turn orange when temperature cools. Where they grow naturally, so in places in Asia, they stay green. So if you eat an orange and it's orange, it's because it's cold. But You're welcome. <laughs> a, 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 gr- the green, a green orange of the type that we eat just wouldn't be ripe yet. So it's not the same. They're still ripe even though they're green. Exactly. Because they're the go. right oranges that are green. The so right everything oranges. I believe to be true is wrong, basically. Question everything. Trust Very good. No uh, I learned this week that manatees and dugongs are related to elephants. So they're basically very cute swimming elephants. Which makes sense when you look at them. They are very, very closely genetically related. Uh, more great facts like that to come next week. Maybe, maybe less animal facts. I know they are the easiest to find of all the facts. Um, but I, well, I can definitely up my game. I'll, I'll try harder. Uh, a reminder of something new from our colleagues at Wired in the US. They're launching a new podcast, or they've launched it actually, it's five episodes in, called Get Wired, just like the Wired UK podcast. It's all about the news from tomorrow, delivered to you today. You can expect trustworthy journalism informed by decades of real understanding of technology. New episodes of Get Wired drop every Monday. Listen and subscribe to it wherever you get your podcasts and keep listening to the Wired UK podcast as well. It's actually really very good. More storytelling, in-depth features, something a bit different to what we do here. So do go and check it out. Our first story this week, Matt Burgess, is the final word for now on the A-Levels results algorithm debacle. It is. So um, if you were listening last week, you may have heard Amit talking about um, the A-level results, which were coming out on that day as the podcast were being recorded. Um, and since then, um, to be honest, uh, a lot of, a lot has happened. Um, and we now sort of understand a lot more about sort of the algorithm that was behind a lot of the um, the A-level results that were giving out this time last week. And as Amit was saying, there were a lot of perceived problems um, with, the, with the standardization model that was uh, be, use, being used to give out grades to students. And essentially, pretty much all of those perceived problems came true. Um, and a lot has happened since then. So analysis of the results found that 40% of grades in England had been downgraded to some extent um, because of this algorithm that was assigning the grades. And the me- methodology of the system has received a lot of scrutiny and was perhaps quite unsurprisingly found that grading pupils based on their school's past performance and only allowing certain amounts of each each grade um, to be to be sort of 
handed out wasn't a fair way of doing this. Uh, while Ofqual, the, the exams regulator and uh, body that oversees all of the exams, um, developed the algorithm, it did take into account some factors uh, that could lead to unfair, unfairness or prejudice, but it left a few of them in there as well by accident, essentially. Uh, these were largely socio-economic factors, um, which have caused some of the problems that we've seen. So over the last week, um, the UK has seen students take to the streets protesting the algorithmic decision-making process. Uh, in one protest, uh, students outside the Department of Education uh, were chanting to uh, swear word the algorithm. Um, and um, we've heard a lot of people's stories about how they were affected. So individuals being uh, discriminated or treated unfairly because of this overall system that was trying to apply uh, a one-size-fits-all model to, to everybody. Um, so in one particular instance there was a student who wrote uh, an award-winning short story about how schools were impacted by a biased algorithm and then was caught up in literally the thing uh, dystopian future that she'd written about um, so eventually all of the sort of public pressure and public outcry over this uh, forced the government into a u-turn it was an absolute mess and i think such a clear example of how bad decision making going into an algorithm can lead to understandably bad outcome. So one of the best examples I read was, I think, a student who was predicted a C grade or a B grade. She was bottom of her class. And because the algorithm had decided based on past performance that someone in that class had to get a U, she was given a U because it had happened previously. So she went from a pretty good, a pretty good grade to essentially being told that she wouldn't have turned up to the exam. And there were so many examples of where, I mean, we talk about an algorithm, but this wasn't really a sophisticated piece of technology, was it, Matt Burgess? It was sort of a, a database, right? Yeah, so algorithm has been used in a lot of the public discourse and um, you, can, you can say it is an algorithm. I think it is it is fair to do so, but really it's something that wasn't particularly um, sort of technologically advanced. So a lot of the people I've been speaking to who have been covering sort of some of the fallout of this over the last week uh, have made the point saying this is really sort of a statistical model. It's uh, something that we can understand quite well and sort of determine why it went wrong. So it's not a system that is using artificial intelligence intelligence or machine learning which um, those types of systems have issues around sort of uh, explainability and understandability and sort of the idea of a black box whereas what we've had here is a case of actually this is something that we know what it's doing um, it's its behaviors were expected if you looked in the right places um, and we've seen a lot of sort of like criticism of sort of um, Ofqual were offered expert advice um, about around statistics but they didn't really take on board that. So this was quite a simple example of this kind of automated decision making. But what can we learn from all of this? This is perhaps the first time people have been really aware that automated decision making is happening and making decisions about their lives that can have fundamental impacts on their futures as more sophisticated systems are set loose on our everyday lives. What do we need to learn from this really, really horrible situation that so many students have been put through this week. 
Yeah, so there are a few things that we we can learn from this. And it's worth saying that uh, at the moment, we don't really know how many uh, algorithms of any sort are really being used in sort of decision making um, processes in the public sector. So councils, government, police forces, Um, this sort of thing is very much kept sort of under wraps a lot of the time until something goes wrong. So uh, just this month, we heard about another algorithm being used by the UK Home Office, which was making decisions about people's visa uh, and immigration status and one of the key factors that that was using uh, it was using people's nationality to sort of grade them uh, in terms of like whether they should be approved or not approved which um, was essentially dropped after accusations and a legal challenge sort of suggesting this was um, a system that could uh, lead to essentially sort of racist decisions basing um, broad categories of uh, sort of decision making on on one factor uh, which was people's nationality so um, these sorts of things the issues are happening already um and from the education example that we've seen this week a few people that i've spoken to have said then there's sort of like three crucial things that are needed for um development of these systems as we go forward so um they need to be a lot more transparent in terms of the development of them there's a lot of information published about the uh, education a levels algorithm but um there wasn't a lot necessarily published about the goals and the aims of the of the algorithm and sort of like the overall assessment of risk and what could go wrong with this so um there needs to be a lot more transparency around that and also the sort of the decision making that goes behind it because in uh with this uh, a level algorithm there's been a lot of suggestion that politicians didn't want to see grade inflation they didn't want to see lots of uh, people getting higher grades based on previous years uh, just because an algorithm was being used and that was a like, political decision that fed into this and then sort of two other things that to touch on briefly that they wanted uh, or people say should have been done differently there needs to be proper systems of redress there needs to be ways to appeal um, these uh, algorithmic decisions uh, so they're understandable to individuals and there needs to be sort of a level of sort of individual justice really so what people were protesting about was their individual grades their the things that impacted them and their lives not necessarily a system being used it was perceived as a level of individual unfairness which wasn't allowed um which stopped people from doing what they wanted so um it's really coming down to people don't want to be seen as a statistic in a model they want it to be personalized to them and uh, relevant on their uh, to their lives Now, the upshot of all of these mistakes is that GCSE and A-level students are going to get their centre assessed grade. So that's the grades that their college or school thought they would have got if they had sat the exams. So that solves one problem. But I'm guessing that we're going to have a problem later down the line when it comes to going to universities and how they're going to deal with all these people that now have had their grades, you know, pushed up again. So what are the upcoming problems that we're now going to have to deal with yeah there are ongoing sort of ramifications because of this as you say so um today uh, as we're recording it's the gcse um a gcse results day and all of the results that have been given out today have been uh, done based on these uh, center assessment scores and uh, not the standardization algorithmic model and we've already seen that um some of the results have uh, there's been grade inflation which is why this model was introduced in the first place to try and avoid it so even that original political aim wasn't necessarily achieved uh, by 
the by the model that was produced or the sort of alternative model so it's a bit of a mess in that respect but for people going on to um universities there's uh, now this extra burden that's being placed on the providers of universities and the the process that sort of gets people assigned in into the correct places uh, so people's university positions and their acceptances have been changed and moved around people that weren't going to one university because of this algorithm but now uh, because they're using the the, the sort of uh, teacher assessed uh, approach now they can go to certain universities so there's this big sort of uh, infrastructure and logistics issue of who goes where the government has taken caps off places at universities so we're seeing that essentially sort of the whole system is being shook up a little bit and um, that's still while uh, sort of ongoing fallout from the uh, use of the algorithmic system in the first place is still unfolding so it's one of these things that's going to have a longer term impact but um, there are lessons that can be learned from the algorithmic side of things and um, I think we'll have to wait and see to see what happens with um, universities going forward and if they can sort out the mess that's been handed to them. We talked about um, coronavirus being a stress test for businesses in the past but it's also very much a stress test for policymakers and governments. So in this instance, the questions to ask aren't why was the algorithm so bad? It's what came before that. It's why was the data that the algorithm was built on biased towards certain people from certain backgrounds? And why were the decisions taken seemingly blind to that bias? Um, There's been various stories that have come out over the past week where the um, the education secretary was presented with opportunities to fix this or to have greater oversight of this and turned those opportunities down or was blind to them. And I think a really important point that was raised in the piece you wrote this week, Matt, was that don't blame the algorithm. It's not really even an algorithm. It's a, it's a decision tree. Blame the data that went into it and ask questions about where that data came from, right? That's yeah, that's one of the things that we probably should take away from this overall. Like if we're going to use these types of systems and there are good reasons in some cases for using these types of systems, uh, algorithms and machine learning and AI in the future can have uh, positive effects on sort of uh, government and business efficiency. It's not necessarily that um, these types of technology are bad, uh, particularly not with statistical models. They've existed for years. It's really understanding and scrutinizing sort of how they're being developed and how they're being used and what their purposes are really to understand to understand sort of the impact that they will have um and with with the uh, exam situation we we knew this was going to be the case for several months exams were cancelled in march um and we're now sort of in the middle of august and there's been time to do this and yes there is a pandemic going on but if the results weren't quite ready why were they rushed out to this stage why wasn't the advice taken and essentially it's all about the process um that we need to learn about for this for ensuring that this doesn't happen again in the future when we're talking about other domains such as uh, the justice system or social care or well-being and lots of other areas where these types of technology are being used so lots to learn essentially podcast at wired.co.uk with your thoughts on that what is the best way forward for algorithmic decision making what lessons can we learn from this story podcast at wired.co.uk our second story this week as is so often the case is something completely different but just as important we're talking about breast milk matt burgess matt reynolds even sorry 
<laughs> Thanks, James. So, yeah, breast milk. It is a super, super important source of nutrients and energy for infants. It's got all kinds of fantastic biological benefit so it protects against gastrointestinal infections it helps reduce obesity risk it's weirdly also um associated with higher iq and uh higher wealth i think later on in life and this is generally why uh health authorities including the who uh, recommend for at least the first 12 months of a child life uh they use uh, uh, children are breastfed although formula is still a perfectly healthy alternative now Despite knowing the benefits of breastfeeding, only half of mothers in the US and a third in the UK are still exclusively breastfeeding at six months. And there are loads and loads of reasons why this is. So some people struggle to produce sufficient amounts of milk. Others, you know, workplaces where they can't, you know, there aren't pumping and storage facilities, uh, or it's kind of like socially not acceptable for someone to breastfeed in public. Other people find expressing milk painful, or they get chafed nipples and all kinds of other problems. And then there are mothers on medication who are undergoing certain, undergoing certain treatments that make it unsafe for them to breastfeed. And because of this, you know, loads of mothers turn to trading breast milk on Gumtree or on Craigslist or on Facebook. But now a pair of startups is trying to go for a completely different solution. They're saying, well, if we can't supply breast milk, let's try growing it in a lab. Well, this is quite an interesting development because often in especially the health tech space you don't get a lot of people paying attention to women's issues at all so this is this is quite quite interesting but how how exactly does one go about growing breast milk in a lab or even producing it in a lab then yeah i, I mean you're you're completely right natasha and interesting enough that the founder of this company that i'm about to talk to that is making lab grown breast milk through a company called Turtle Tree Labs in Singapore. She stumbled across the issue because she was really interested in artisan cheese making. And she was thinking, well, if you can, you know, make certain types of, uh, uh, you know, if you can uh, try and use cells to kind of create uh, synthetic cheeses, why can't you do that with breast milk? Interesting enough, people actually do make cheese breast milk, which is a whole another kind of, you know, weird world. But but yes, you're, you're completely right. So really underserved um, kind of market. But there's this company, as I said, Turtle Tree Labs, that is, you know, one of the pair of startups that is working on this. So how it works is that what Turtle Tree Labs do is they take stem cells from donor breast milk. And so basically, uh, breast milk includes all these kind of stem cells that actually can grow into uh, breast milk producing cells. And then it kind of grows them in a bioreactor, you know, kind of uh, feeding them with growth milk that makes these these uh, cells multiply and eventually differentiate into something that into cell types, you know, mammary gland cells that produce milk. Once those cells are differentiated, if you feed them the right nutrients, they start producing milk, just like they would inside the human body. They can do it outside of the human body. And this entire process to go from taking this stem cell sample to having them produce milk uh, takes about three weeks. And from then, the mammary cells can lactate for roughly 200 days. Now, if you're at all familiar with the process of creating lab-grown meat, this will sound really, really familiar because essentially you're doing the same thing with lab-grown meat. You take a cell sample, you multiply it, you differentiate it, you turn it into a certain cell type, and then you use that to kind of create your product, usually, you know, a burger or a you know, chicken breast or something like this. In this case, we're much more interested in what those cells can then go on and produce rather than the cells themselves. 
So I guess one of the really big questions here is how does this uh, lab-grown alternative compare to breast milk? And what do we know about um, its, um, yeah, how, how much like the real thing it is? Yeah, I mean, it's a really good question because there's no point creating lab-grown breast milk, just like creating lab-grown uh, meat if it can't compete with the real thing because people aren't going to use it and it's not going to be useful. Now, the upshot of this is, is you can't exactly replicate breast milk in the lab. Now, the reason is, is that human breast milk contains really high amount of antibodies that are produced in the blood and are then passed on to the baby. And that gives them some protection against diseases. Um, and you know, not only that, but breast milk is a really super complicated um, biofluid fluid. So it has hundreds of proteins, has 200 of these um, substances called um, oligosaccharides. Um, it, can, it has a multitude of hormones, fats and beneficial bacteria. And lots of these different molecules are actually made elsewhere in the body and transported to the mammary cells. So you can't replicate these things that are created in the blood because obviously in a bioreactor, these cells aren't being supplied with blood and there's, there's another way in which they don't quite match up so breastfeeding is actually weirdly it's not just a process of fluid going from the mother to the baby but the baby's saliva we think kind of is detected by the by the woman's body and that then informs and changes um it provides signals that then might change the composition of the breast milk so you haven't got that two-way process going on either so it's not quite like the real thing Something that um, I learned when we had our kid a couple of years ago, um, a really, really useful bit of material that the NHS put together was a comparison of all the different components of breast milk versus formula milk. And they just hold them up on, on two pieces of paper. And in formula milk, there's a few ingredients. In breast milk, it's a whole A4 sheet in tiny, tiny typeface of all of these amazing things that are in breast milk. And as you said at the beginning, Matt, Obviously, for some mothers, breastfeeding just isn't an option, and there are hugely complicated reasons as to why that might be. So the closer we can get to this miracle fluid that is breast milk, the better. And this is better than formula, right? Yeah, exactly. So compared to formula, lab-grown breast milk should be much, much closer to the real thing. The reason is, is that formula milks tend to be based on cow milk, which is kind of obvious when you think about it, because you we haven't got vast reserves of breast milk that we can then turn into formula. So cow's milk has a much higher protein content than formula, um, sorry, than breast milk, and it also has a much lower carbohydrate level. So it doesn't have the same kind of nutritional uh, profile. And there's also a bit of an environmental cost to this as well, because formula uses cow's milk as a starting material. The environmental cost of producing it is really quite large. It takes an estimated four and a half thousand litres of water just to make one kilogram of milk powder and also it frequently contains stuff like palm oil which itself has a large carbon footprint none of that stuff is associated with breast milk of course okay so how long until people who have children who can't breastfeed them or don't want to can kind of find these products in a supermarket then yeah this is always a question and if the cell-based meat industry is anything to go by we'll have promises of products on the shelves for next year but really it's going to be five or ten or fifteen 
years away. So I don't want to get people's hopes up. There are a number of hurdles that would have to you know, be solved before lab-grown breast milk becomes a reality. So for one, uh, firms must find a way to keep this costly production down to so the nutrients um, and the kind of lactation media that you need to feed these cells, you know, it needs to be much cheaper than it is currently for it to be able to be, you know, scaled up. Um, and then secondly, they need to find a way to design these kind of bioreactors that are large enough to create this process in. So Turtle Tree Labs, that's Singapore-based company I was talking about, it's currently optimising their process in a 5-litre bioreactor, but they want to scale up to 1,000 and 50,000 litres within the next year. And that's really the kind of levels beyond that that you need to get if you're going to actually turn this into an industrial food production process. And you mentioned right at the top that there are two companies competing, if you like, in, in this space, and they both have quite different plans as to what happens as this scales and goes on to become a consumer product. Yeah, exactly. So the company I've been talking about mostly, Turtle Tree Labs, um, its plan is to license its technology to formula companies so they can create their own formula from it. And that has lots of benefits if you think um, parents might already trust a particular formula. So they'll be like, oh, there's just this you know, different version of this formula we know already. There's, there's perhaps a, a bit of a lower bar to doing that than selling this as an entirely new product. But Biomilk is a US-based US company that wants to sell directly to consumers. Both of these companies are actually at a pretty similar level. They've both raised about $3.5 million, which in this world is not a whole bunch, but they're both at the pretty early stage of their research. They'd also need to get, overcome the problem with getting this product you know, registered by the FDA and, and food safety organisations and approved by regulators. So there's a whole kind of a bunch of different things that we need to work out before you actually would start seeing this on supermarket shelves. It's a fascinating story about some really, really exciting innovation. Head to the show notes to get a link to that story where we'll also include a link to everything else that we talk about in the show this week. And do get in touch, podcast at wired.co.uk with your thoughts on that story or anything else that we talk about on the show this week or any other week if you're going back through the archive. Do get in touch. Our third and final story this week, Natasha, is about those much-loved creatures, the digital nomads. Yeah, that's right. So I wanted to start off with a very quick straw poll. I mean, I dream of going to, you know, work in a lighthouse on the coast or um, in a small cabin in the woods up a mountain in Scotland. And I wanted to figure out where you guys wanted to go. If you could sort of work anywhere in the world, just sort of transport yourselves and your laptops and your workstations anywhere else, where would you go? Um, start off with Matt Burgess. Ooh, that's a, that's a tough one. Um, I, I, I'm going to say probably almost similar to you actually somewhere in the mountains um and just somewhere that's quite remote and just you could go out and walk and run and stuff freely uh over the hills uh, in a romantic fashion um <laughs> whenever whenever you chose to all right james um i'd construct a cabin immediately next to matt burgess's cabin so that we could run <laughs> romantically and freely across the mountains together that sounds beautiful Matt Reynolds? Well, Natasha, I decided, you know, inspired by your, uh, you know, your article, I decided not just to fantasise about the digital nomad life, but I'm, I'm literally living it. I am recording from a very hot 
and sweaty and it turns out with a bad internet connection uh, room in Bologna in, in northern Italy so I moved here like a couple of weeks ago and have been working from here so I'm, I'm you know I am a, a case study not quite so exotic as some of the people uh, in the article on why.co.uk but you know in my own way I'm living a digital nomad life right now. Hang on yeah, you, so you moved basically... to Italy and didn't tell us. <laughs> oh, oh no I should have cleared that James. James can we <laughs> After this call, can we just have a bit of a discussion? Because I've got something I wanted to chat with you about. Yes, but you, uh, you have to do it all in Italian. Yeah, that might be a problem. <laughs> yeah, so why are we I was, talking about I was kind of hoping nomads? for something romantic. No. Ended. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, so uh, the, the, thing, the thing I'm talking about is digital nomads, which is basically what Matt Reynolds has done. But instead of sticking yourself in like a sweaty, a sweaty kind of awful uh, flat, which happens to look beautiful, by the way, and has views of the wonderful city of Bologna, um, you can go anywhere. So these are people who have decided to, to do something different and work somewhere else in the world for a while. So they're able to set up shop in far-flung locations and enjoy exotic new destinations with far cheaper living costs while still doing their day jobs. And now that we're working from home, it makes little difference whether you're logging in from a flat in Hackney or a beach in Bali. I'm, I'm guessing from your sort of like introduction as well, where you were talking about um, people going to sort of more extreme places that the people that we've been speaking to for, for this article and for this story are going a bit further. So do we know where people have gone? Yeah, so the next new hottest place is in Mexico. So we travelled in this article virtually to a remote location that has been completely taken over by digital nomads. So if you imagine like beautiful ancient Maya ruins on hilltops, silky white sand on a tropical beach and a town filled with people carrying laptops, sunning themselves between Zooms, that's literally what life is like in the Mexican city of Tulum, which is about two hours drive from Cancun. So life there harks back to the before times so people don't have to socially distance and they don't have to wear masks in public. It sounds glorious and weird. And so I'm guessing that it's all very well if you're young and you work in the startup or maybe you own your startup so you can kind of uproot and go somewhere else. But if, you're, if you've got kids at school and you need to pick them up or you've got, say, a house and you're paying a mortgage, that mm. presumably is going to change the kind of people that can do this. So is there a, a quintessential digital nomad? What kind of people are we talking about? It's you. Matt Reynolds, it's you. Oh, it <laughs> is me, yeah. <laughs> yes, you are. So digital nomads have always, you're right, been typically millennials who can quickly uproot, travel light and pursue creative industries, which don't necessarily have rigid nine to five hours or demanding bosses that make you kind of clock in and clock out. And so th- they would normally have stop-offs that last a few months um, it, and they kind of perform a sort of form of slow tourism which is combined with a flexible working life so you wouldn't lose your income necessarily but you get to live somewhere and explore somewhere in your spare time that you might not have otherwise been able to go to so now that we're all working from home though things are changing because some people have been told to not come back to the office until next summer or not at all so it's easier than ever for more people to decide that they would like a change in, in major cities especially like London we're all we're all in London except for you Matt um, people are paying really exorbitant 
exorbitant rents to be close to workplaces that they might never go back to. And the more adventurous people in the workplace are uprooting to go to places they may have been able to afford if they went on holiday or not even at all to do this tourism while keeping the stability of a salary and a regular income. So all these communities are cropping up around the world from Kangu in the east to Medellin in the west, but with Bali as a hotspot for dropshipping businesses, which is a whole other article that you should definitely read on wire.co.uk. And Colombian borders are closed due to coronavirus. Many are heading to Mexico. Uh, the big digital nomad community in Tulum that we explored draws in the hippie and the creative types. In this piece, we spoke to a death doula and a vision advisor who helps startup entrepreneurs to meditate their way to success, whatever that means. Uh, one person described working there as an eat, pray, love journey. So you can get kind of a vibe of what that's probably like. Matt Reynolds, have you come across many death doulas and vision advisors in Bologna? I, you know what? I, I actually just had to Google what a death doula is. So, so it's someone that assists in the dying process. And I ha- I'm, I'm really glad to report that I have not yet had the need to get my death doula involved. But and Natasha, if you can recommend me a number, it might, might come <laughs> in handy in the next you know, six months or whatever. Fair enough. Hopefully not. Um, so it, it all sounds great death doulas and vision advisors aside, but what are the actual downsides to this paradise way of life? Of course, there are dangers in in everything, especially now. So despite the US Department of State advising against traveling and the land border being shut, Mexico is still one of the few territories that are open to American passport holders, so long as you arrive by air. Given that COVID-19 is rife throughout the US, there's a danger that these digital nomads who are looking for a better lifestyle will basically bring the disease into Mexico with them. Um, of course, that, that's something that is a danger. It's pretty much everywhere at the moment. In the, obviously, in Europe, cases are going up. They're going up across the world. Some places are seeing second waves. So that's something that you have to factor in anywhere. If you go, obviously, abroad um, and something happens and you just come back home, or if you find yourself in difficulty, let's say you catch COVID while you're away being a digital nomad, you have to just be prepared for that kind of eventuality and, and accept the risk, I guess. But the bigger factor that, that we were looking at in this piece is the sheer volume of digital nomads and the impact that they can have on a local community. So as Tulum, for example, becomes more and more attractive, rents could hike up and the cost of living could become too expensive for local people who have been living in the area for a long time. But interestingly, the people on the ground told us the complete opposite. They don't believe that this will be the case because unlike normal tourism, the people who travel to Tulum are there to live and work for the medium term and they put money back into the economy even though they're not employed by local businesses. Another argument which we heard, which was quite peculiar, is that once they arrive, a lot of them decide to stay. So um, it, it does seem to be a kind of, I suppose, an itch that you want to scratch at the beginning but then turns into your lifestyle. So if we never see you again, Matt Reynolds... We'll know why. Well, it'll either be the death doula or it'll be decided <laughs> to stay, but we, we may never know which, how it ended up. Um, and you say it's peculiar, but you can imagine people on Silicon Valley salaries um, swapping very expensive rents and mortgages for the good life on a paradise sandy beach. I mean, it, it doesn't sound that peculiar to me. And another version of this that we're seeing is less digital nomads and more remote working right um so there's a difference here between people that have second homes in cornwall and destroy small beautiful villages because they want somewhere nice by the seaside this is people moving to places full-time long term and this is causing some headaches for employers 
who set market rates for salaries. So we've seen discussions amongst the big companies in California, Facebook, Apple, Google. Do you pay people the same if you know that they live in a part of the world where living expenses are far lower, even though they can just as effectively do their job there as they could in California? Well, that's the difficulty, isn't it? Because you can't really argue that the job is different. Um, I think that the interesting conundrum that companies are facing at the moment is what happens when it's safe to go back at least part time. Uh, because if you have been asking people to work from home for months and months on end, their productivity levels are still up. Um, they might be working from different parts of the world. You can't really justify suddenly saying if you can't come into the office or if you can't live in a certain area, we're suddenly going to drop your salary. But the interesting thing here is that the, the I suppose it's an element of globalization. You can go somewhere else completely in the world and live a completely different lifestyle on the same salary um, as, as you once did in a one bedroom flat in, in London. You might be living in a sort of a, a nice chalet with like two, three different I don't know, I'm thinking paddocks, but I don't know why I'm at gardens, I don't know, swimming pool, whatever, um, and live amazing lifestyles just because it's a lot cheaper where you're going. I think um, the the risks have to outweigh outweigh the the benefits at some point for a lot of businesses when they go, we we don't have enough control over people. And we've seen surveillance increase um, and that's just the way it's going to carry on. But it's, it's weird when you think about people working flexibly versus people who are digital nomads, because for digital nomads, you can't expect them to come in at any point. And you have to accept from the get go that your employee is based somewhere else. Um, whereas for flexible working, there's a massive grey area where c- companies can just decide on the drop of the hat that it's time for people to come back to work or that they want to change your schedule. And there's much less control I think if you're somewhere completely different um, than if you're next door. There's another part of this that I just wanted to briefly touch on because people might roll their eyes a bit at digital nomads or um, have an idea that this isn't something that they do but the other side to this is there was an um, an internship in the United States at a media organization that ordinarily attracts a few hundred or maybe a thousand applicants that received tens of thousands of applications because it went from being based in New York where rents are exorbitantly high and most people can't access employment to being remote so anyone in the United States I think could now apply for these internships so it, it opens up opportunities to people who are all over the country and potentially the world which could be a much needed shot in the arm for diversifying businesses and allowing them to attract talent that isn't just locally based or economically viable if that makes sense yeah definitely and it does kind of level the playing field in in a way that it's never previously been possible or even thought of and I think companies have been very short-sighted uh, thinking that you have to stay in the office and you have to ask people to come to the office uh, to do sort of very low paid internships work experience um, entry-level positions now you don't it's been proven you don't need to do that and that will hopefully help to make people rethink things I think that the interesting thing is if a lot of companies decide doing the same thing is a good idea then there's no reason really to stay in big cities where those rents are exorbitant anymore people are going to start thinking you know actually it doesn't make sense and perhaps the was it the industrial revolution that brought us here um i'm being romantic here but like 120 odd years ago might be the the, the kind of ebb and flow that the, the ebb might happen now where you go actually it makes no sense let's all go back to the countryside 
So while you and Matt Burgess dream of separate but equally remote uh, mountainside cabins and Matt Reynolds enjoys the good life in Italy, what are you doing to change how you work? Podcast at Wired co.uk have any of you up sticks and moved to another country or another part of the country um, to a more rural setting or have some of you moved into the city to take advantage of a sudden influx of former airbnb properties that are suddenly available so you can live the good life in the center of a city that was previously unaffordable podcast at wired.co.uk how is your work-life balance changing and are any of you turning into fully fledged digital nomads do let us know uh, which brings us on to the contents of our email inbox this week, which was absolutely overflowing. So thank you so much for everyone who got in touch via podcast at wired.co.uk this past week. Thanks especially to Kate and Jack, who went so far as to send in pictures of their avocado avocado plants for Vicky, who mentioned that she was trying to grow one last week. Uh, suffice to say, um, Vicky's is not thriving, whereas yours are. We'll have regular avocado updates for you um, as hopefully Vicky's avocado pip turns into a fully fledged plant. Uh, what else was in the inbox this week Natasha? So we had a message from Tomo who said um, and this is him uh, I'm a huge fan of your podcast he says um, he said that he was quite surprised about uh, the criticism that he heard on the podcast about working from home. He says that his workplace anxiety has been a real boon um, during the, the lockdown because he started a new job mid-lockdown, having struggled and lost a previous job with really bad anxiety. He says, my family and I were very worried about the future. Since he got a new job, though, he's no longer anxious. He's able to work at his pace, which is extremely fast, he says, without a manager looking over his shoulder, telling him exactly how it should be done. He says it's allowed him the freedom to do well at his job and not worry about panic attacks or appearing depressed or anxious. In my last job, he says, some days I struggled to hold back Back the tears subsequently I've absolutely smashed it he says that he hopes when he finally returns to the physical office whenever that will be he will be much more resilient now this is interesting because I don't think we actually dissed a working from home exactly I think um, what we were saying was very much um, that the balance of working from home and working in the office at the moment is is you've got the risk of dying because uh, of a pandemic or you've got the risk of sort of feeling very isolated and alone and stressed out at home this I think uh, message from Tomo shows just how differently people are taking life at home uh, I've found it that it sucks <laughs> but but I think a lot of people are having different experiences and you're right being able to sort of work unimpeded at home without someone who is a horrible boss kind of hovering over you must be a good experience um but I think for a lot of other people there's a bit of a, a especially I, I don't know I've seen it in at Wired there's a sort of sense of loneliness um and missing your colleagues a little bit uh especially when they're in Bologna so there's that why did you leave us Matt Reynolds why <laughs> my gosh why Sorry, I'm here with you in spirit, and uh, you know, I, I, I say I, I completely agree with Tom. I think it makes it makes a lot of sense that for some people, actually, um, you know, working from home means I don't know maybe you're anxious about the journey to work, or you know, you know, whatever. I think that it's great. That there's kind of this other option. So hopefully, as you were saying, James, it it gives people a new mode of working, and maybe even brings new people into the workforce that might have seen industries shut off to them before. So there's, there is some positivity on the horizon. I think. 
Absolutely. Thanks very much for your email, Tomo. We also uh, had an email from Jeremy, who writes in to say he's been an avid listener since the start of 2020 and absolutely loves the show. He especially enjoyed my uncovering of the Airbnb scam, which we reported at the beginning of the year, and our weekly running commentary on COVID-19. Uh, he said that our piece on cleaners and coronavirus theatrics really hit home last week as he's just returned from holiday. He writes that some measures were in place, such as wiping down of tables, but in the same restaurant, waiters had no face marks when they were serving him and he had to take a plate and glass off their tray when they were holding it, which seemed completely pointless. A number of people that I've spoken to have pointed this out. You take the tray, you take the glass and the plate off the tray. They've obviously touched the glass and the plate to put it on the tray. They've been breathing all over it if they're not wearing a mask. And then they stand right next to you in order for you to take the stuff off the tray. Um, so there's some agreement, I think, uh, amongst a lot of people about the pointlessness of some forms of this theatrics. He also has um, what he sees as a, a useful partial solution to um, the number of people facing unemployment or coming off the furlough scheme. We've been talking about a lack of enforcement of social distancing rules and mask wearing and face covering wearing on public transport. His suggestion, why not put people into jobs to help enforce the rules, especially if we're going to be living through this for some time. I don't know if anyone has any thoughts on that. Is that Do we need people to be enforcing these rules or is what we're seeing when we go out and about a better adherence to the rules as time goes by? It's getting worse and worse. I've I've been um, taking a few trains because I have no other option. Um, but it, it's mental how many people are wearing masks who are clearly not exempt because they're wearing a mask, but they wear them just around their mouth or around their chins. I saw a man getting onto a train um, that was wearing a mask and took it off as he came into the carriage. Like it was some sort of, he was taking his hat off at church or something. The whole thing was just completely bizarre. Um, and, and people are just sort of breathing on each other and touching a lot of things. I feel like it's getting worse the more amount of people that are out and about and going back to work. Um, and it's really hard to tell who is exempt and who isn't. And it's not a comfortable situation to sort of ask someone, can you please cover your nose because you're only covering your mouth. Um, it's, it's, you can't do that. It's It's not appropriate i suppose at least i haven't figured out a way of doing it properly so perhaps it's terrible public, yeah employ people public information uh, campaign to remind people that they breathe through their nose as well as their mouth um might be required uh, our final email this week matt burgess uh was from dan yeah so dan wrote in wrote in after last week's podcast around exam results um and asking how other countries have handled the issue because um obviously the pandemic has been everywhere and, and students all around the world will have been taking or set to take exams at certain points um and dan writes in uh what methods are other countries using and have we seen other issues where things have gone as wrong as uh, they did in england and scotland um so, yeah, I sort of left this one just uh, separate from that story, but it is a really um, good point to bring up. And there are some cases of this already. I think the most prominent case has been um, with um, the IB set of exams, which are taken sort of all around the world. Um, in that case, there was a very similar sort of like automation, uh, decision making and grading process that was set up. Um, and the data protection regulator in Europe, uh, in, not in Europe, in Norway, sorry. 
has been looking at this issue and said that um, the same sorts of problems that we saw in the UK um, have uh, have happened here. And they essentially ordered sort of like um, this automated decision not to be used. Um, and similarly, in, in the US, there were um, protests about this um, exact issue with that um, IB system. Um, and there were, I think there were sort of hundreds of thousands of students protesting at some points against uh, against the process and how it happened. So it is something that is clearly an issue in lots of different places, as well as the UK. Um, I haven't seen too much more discussion around what's happened in other countries. Um, so I guess we'll probably have to wait and see on some of those things. But there probably uh, will be much, many more discussions happening around sort of the process of exams generally and whether they're good ways to uh, to assess people and what other methodologies could be used instead. So um, yeah, there have been similar issues, but um, don't have the full picture on that one at the second. And as we're seeing in the United States, there are discussions of whole school systems remaining closed through until next year. That might end up being the case in a lot of countries if there is a surge in coronavirus cases as we move in the Northern Hemisphere from summer and autumn into winter. So it's far from done and dusted. This was one set of exams in one set of countries. And as you say, Matt, it's a really, really complicated issue that we're maybe not going to have a good solution to until we have a vaccine and widespread use of that vaccine, which could be some time away. It's always important to keep reminding yourself of that. We're nowhere near there yet. Podcast at Wired dot co dot uk please do get in touch we love hearing from you um and on the cheery notes that uh we're going to be stuck in this strange situation for potentially years to come uh we'll leave it there uh hope you enjoyed the show this week thanks for listening and we'll catch you again next week goodbye Bye. Bye. Bye.